0: we mm-hmm. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 332 of x Labs, where uh, today we're pulling a book from the pile of... Oh yeah, we still have to talk about that. <laughs> I totally forgot that Devil's Reign uh, was a thing that uh, our X-Books tied into, but um, in fact it did for three entire issues. Today we're going to talk about the second... And uh, I'm trying to get this episode in Stop me if you heard this one before But I'm in between appointments um, I must sound like the most sickly individual on the planet I, I assure you that I'm not um, Today I just have to uh, have to Go in for a consult on Getting my wisdom teeth removed My bottom wisdom teeth Which uh, is one of those things I've been putting off I um, had my two top wisdom teeth pulled out uh, As a teenager And uh, I was... Broke as a joke when um, When I had to do it And I wouldn't have done it if I wasn't in tremendous pain But, uh, yeah, they They kind of went bad, I guess Or they had, uh, I don't know They just came in wrong or something But they hurt a lot So, um, I had to find a dentist That would pull them Without, uh, <laughs> without any kind of uh, Novocaine or anesthesia Because I couldn't afford it And, uh yeah, that wasn't that wasn't one of my finest days. Um, hopefully, this go-around will be a little bit less, uh, you know, horrendously nightmarish. But um, speaking of wit, no, no, I'm kidding. This is actually not a bad issue we're going to be talking about. This is Devil's Reign X-Men number two. This had a May 2022 cover date. The story is called Truth and Consequences, written by Jerry Duggan, with art by Phil Noto. Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles, Designs, Tom Muller, Edits, Amaro, White, Cebulski, cover price, $3.99. This one went on sale March the 2nd of 2022. And we open with a mostly blank quote page, which is, you know, a page and money well spent. Uh, The Kingpin advises a Mr. Wesley on how to best observe Emma Frost, and uh, this will come back around before the end of the issue. We, we open, you know, uh, the actual comic book portion with Emma Frost chatting up a couple of lawyers about the recently broken news that she might be connected to a cold case murder. And uh, that's the little girl from the first issue, which, completely honest, I can barely remember. And I even went so far as to reread my own script for the episode, and I still, I can barely remember it. Anyway... Her legal team advises her that, uh, well, this doesn't look good for her. To which, I mean, it's a good thing she's got that Krakoan diplomatic immunity, right? That is still a thing, isn't it? And if it is, I mean, this is to ask, why is she even sweating this? Um, I don't know. Uh, It's probably just to clear her name, which, eh, you know, I suppose that's noble. Just not something I feel we need to read 75 pages of. Anyway, she assures her team that she would never, ever hurt a child, and uh, the law dogs want to know if uh, there might be any other skeletons in Emma's closet that might come back and bite them during this proceeding. Really? I mean, come on. I mean, Emma Frost is not a great person. This should be common knowledge, right? There, there I, Are there any skeletons? Of course there are skeletons. It's Emma Frost. Anyway, this takes us into flashback montage land where we see Emma doing a bunch of sketchy stuff at the behest of the Kingpin. She parades into a bank dressed like the Invisible Woman to secure a $200 million loan. We see her chatting up Tony Stark about something at some posh restaurant. She telepathically informs She-Hulk that her client is guilty during a trial. She has a threesome with Nick Fury and some broad. Um, uh, Nick is handcuffed to the bedpost. And, uh, after going through the montage, Emma tells her lawyers that, eh, maybe we don't volunteer any information just yet. After all, she's innocent. In fact, this entire cold case is a sham, because the girl everybody thinks is dead is actually very much alive. This takes us to our double-page spread of roll call and cred. Our characters include Emma Frost, Kingpin, and Electra. Back to comics, and we're back to Flashback Land. It's uh, years ago at the Hellfire Club. Emma's in her room reading when Electra barges her way in. Electra reveals that she was seen while working, which we saw last issue. That much I'm pretty sure I remember. Um, now, Emma assumes that this means Electra's witness is going to have to be, uh, you know, offed. And then she reads Elle's mind, uh, discovering that. Well, it was a child who spotted her, and realizes that this changes everything. From here, they have a bit of a, like, a moral one-upping conversation, which might just be the high point of the entire issue. They're comparing, they're comparing basically what they do. Electra is a killer, but, in fairness to her, she acts swiftly. Now, Emma projects herself as being merciful, but when you stop to think about it, they're really the same. Only difference is that Emma's methods take longer, and ultimately hurt more. A uh, death of a thousand cuts is how Electra describes it, and uh, I really like that descriptor. Now, after the chat, we follow the ladies across town to the apartment where that little girl from last issue is sleeping. Now, she's home alone, and she's a foster child. It's implied here that the foster folks only have her to get the government stipend, and really don't pay much attention to her otherwise. Emma does some hoodoo and deduces that the child has already told her parents about seeing Electra. Further, the folks were quick to use this information as a way to try and get some reward money out of the police. The short of it is, the NYPD very likely already have Electra's description tied to whatever this case may be. And Elektra knows if the cops know, then he will undoubtedly know as well. And of course she's talking about the kingpin. Now, before the ladies can plan their next move, Electra picks up the sound of the Kingpin's men tromping up the fire escape, or the stairwell, or something like that. Anyway, the Kingpin's men are there to kill them, as, you know, it wouldn't take much more in the way of connecting the dots to wrangle Fisk into this whole Michigas. Emma suggests maybe they call the police, to which Electra suggests that uh, the people who were about to kill them likely are the police, because Fisk's connections run deep, of course. Emma telepathically sweeps the area and manages to find someone who may be of assistance. And it's the black-suited Spider-Man. So uh, flashback land occurs post-Secret Wars. The, the first one. The less horrendous one. Uh, Spidey stops eating his burger and swings into the apartment, where he finds himself staring down the business end of several hired guns. With the baddies distracted, Electro lunges in and starts slitting throats. Like, non-lethally. Somehow, but she's slitting throats all the same As the fight rages on in the next room over Or maybe it's the whole way outside the apartment I'm not totally sure, the backgrounds are uh, kind of sparse uh, Emma wakes up the little witness Now she introduces herself as a good witch In contrast with Electra's bad witch She asks the top to get dressed and pick some of her most favorite things to take with her The girl wonders if she's being kidnapped And Emma assures her that this is nothing like that Though... You know, it totally is. Even Spidey picks up on it, and he kind of starts freaking out in mid-battle here that he's unwittingly aiding a kidnapping in progress. Emma and the little witness think Spider-Man is pretty dumb. Emma then walks up to Spider-Man and invades his mind without permission. And we get all the regular Spidey stuff. uh, Uncle Ben, the burglar, dead Gwen Stacy, Aunt May's bills. You know, the usual. Emma is saddened that Spidey experienced so much while he was still a child. She kisses him on the cheek and thanks him for doing what he does She then asks him to clean up the scene before Electra turns everybody into hamburger meat Which, I mean, I can't say it enough here She's been slitting throats for several pages at this point And uh, we're somehow to believe that there were no casualties? <laughs> I mean, the way Emma puts it, it's like Hey, you know, you might want to stop Electra before we need to bring people to the morgue Which says to me that they're still alive, but... I don't know. Anyway, from here, Emma takes the girl, her name is Isabel, by the way, to a waiting limousine. There, Izzy realizes that being kidnapped is pretty friggin' sweet. Now, here's the thing. While Emma's loading the kid in, one of the kingpin's men is off in an alley somewhere, snapping pics of the entire thing. And so, the fat man now has another piece to play. From here, I think we hop back to the present, where the front page of the newspaper has a photo of Emma with Isabel. She's now more connected to this cold case than ever. From here, we hop over to an info page, and it's an encrypted email from a James Wesley. This is the guy the Kingpin was addressing in the Mostly blank Quote page that opened the issue. Now, this contains Emma Frost's personal file. It's all full of information that, uh, well, isn't included here on the page. It's just a list. Oh, well. Back to comics and back to the present. Now, Emma saunters through a rogue Krakoan gate that she keeps at the London Hellfire Club. Now, if you remember, in an issue of Excalibur, uh, Reuben the Wizard, who was now the UN ambassador to the UK somehow, he ended the uh, Krakoan Treaty. So, gateways, nor mutants, nor, I assume, mutants called gateway, are no longer welcome on his shores. Uh, Kudos to Duggan for remembering and acknowledging this. Uh, I sure ain't gonna credit the editors. Anyway, Emma stomps through, dressed like Michael Jackson. She immediately spots an ugly yellow van, which is where a couple of dudes are camped out, surveilling her. She TPs them into driving into a lake where they probably drowned. She then gets punched square in the face by... Union Jack. Now Jack is kind of like the British Moon Knight to me. Really, really cool costume. Dreadfully dull everything else. Anyway, he's got a side blocker and a canister full of... No diamond skin? (laughs) I'm guessing it's just a mutant power nullifier, which... Hey, you know, it's actually been a minute since we last saw one of these in action. It felt like for a while there, early in Dawn of X, mutant nullifier gimmicks were everywhere. Like, we couldn't go an issue without seeing one. But it's been a minute, so hey, there you go. And this is where we actually leave the issue. We've got Emma with a blackened left eye and her hands cuffed, being dragged away by Union Jack. And that is where we leave it. Next time out, we're back into Zlato's Lado Land with, uh, I want to say it's X Deaths number three. But for now, how about we talk about this one? Um, it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. Uh, it was just very much a middle chapter of, uh, in my opinion, a mostly unnecessary tie in. Um, at least it was pretty to look at. I just don't know that it was essential. Then again, in the world of superhero comics, you know, what is, right? I think, for me, uh, a lot of my hesitation toward embracing stories like this is, um, you know, we can file this under Chris problems or whatever, but I simply don't see what's so cool about Emma Frost. I-, I mean, she's a fine character, but the push that's been made over the past however many years to put her front and center, I guess I just don't see what Marvel does. And I mean, how many times do we need to see Emma the altruist who does bad things for the right reasons? You know, Emma being awful to everybody and everything, but then crumbling into a blubbering mess anytime a child's in danger. You know, except for all the children she personally put in danger. I just don't feel like these stories actually add anything to anything. And I'm not suggesting that uh, these bits are not... You know, organic or natural to the character Because, I mean, that's long established as being part of Emma's backstory Is that she's a mentor, she's a teacher She was with the Hellions, she was with Generation X uh, I mean, she always takes a shine to mentoring and protecting the young So I'm definitely not suggesting that it doesn't fit It's just... it's just been done It's, it's been done a lot, and it will continue <laughs> getting done a lot um, Now, I did enjoy seeing Spider-Man here I really wasn't expecting that, even though he is on the cover. Then again, so is Dazzler, because uh, I guess Phil Noto really wanted to draw Dazzler? Maybe? Um, uh, I also appreciated the chat that Elektra and Emma had at the Hellfire Club. I mentioned this during the synopsis. Um, I feel like this one, this was very, very strong writing. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, Elektra and Emma might not be quite as different as, uh, as Emma believes they are. They're both very dangerous women, and it's only really in their methods that they differ, because the end result is often the same. It's worth noting, uh, Electra, bloodthirstiness aside, didn't kill the Little Witness. So perhaps she and Emma have the same line that they're not willing to cross, which, you know, makes them even more alike, doesn't it? One last thing I want to mention, and I did already say this during the synopsis, but I don't think it could be overstated... I want to thank whoever it was that was responsible for remembering and acknowledging that Krakow and Gates were banned in the UK. I tell you, it's a sad state of affairs when this sort of attention to detail is so often lacking in these books that when we actually see it addressed, it's like a huge victory of cohesive storytelling, the likes of which we haven't seen in a very long time. So kudos to whoever, because it would have been just as easy not to mention it at all. And then if any actual comic book readers asked why it wasn't addressed, uh, the editors and creators would have just mocked them for, for caring too much about things that don't matter. Overall, um, uh, this, like a lot of current year fare, um, probably would have been best served as like an extra-sized one-shot. Three issues of this, I mean, hell, even two issues of it, uh, is too many. At least in my opinion, and maybe even in creative's opinion, but, I mean, marketing does what marketing does, and uh, things are solicited for however many pages they need to be solicited for. At the end of the day, at least it's pretty. And thus ends our discussion on Devil's Reign X-Men number two. Let's hop into the mailbag here for a little chat. Uh, we're going to talk to Evan about The Trial of Magneto number five. Now he says, Thunderbird is a Barry Allen type to me, most notable for being dead. His time may be over-romanticized, but it could have been in story too. Maybe Banshee really was that happy to see him, even though they didn't have a strong connection just because he was there at the beginning and died so soon. And this is addressing the uh, the return of Thunderbird, of course. Uh, I mean, that's obvious. (laughs) Thunderbird returned via the Scarlet Witch's uh, waiting room hoodoo at the end of uh, the Trial of Magneto miniseries. As a way to uh, resurrect those who, were, uh, who had passed before Cerebro was a thing And the Shi'ar uh, logic crystals were, were part of the uh, milieu, I guess But um, as we talked about during that episode uh, Thunderbird is, uh, like Evan says here, he's more notable for being dead He's a symbol He's that one character we could always point to Who was never brought back Who died you know, a valiant, yet very, very stubborn uh, death it was, I don't know, I, I think he's much better served as a symbol And as, a, as an inspiration and as a reminder To, uh, I, I mean, mutant mortality isn't a thing anymore, right? We know that But someone like Thunderbird is always there to serve as a reminder Of, you know, what could happen What is the worst case scenario? Even though we can come back to life scaty eight million times There is a cost And Thunderbird was that cost very, very early on. And it's funny, um, right after, or shortly after reading uh, the Trial of Magneto number 5, I started the X-Men vignettes project on the site. And uh, I've been digging into the backups, the backup stories from classic X-Men. And early on in the run... Was one dedicated to to Thunderbird Which did expand a little bit on his relationships with his fellow X-Men Because we didn't get to see that initially You know, we saw them just bump heads And really not engage in much in the way of a deep or thoughtful dialogue or discourse It was more just very aloof, disinterested, um, combative You know, we really didn't know a whole heck of a lot about them and even after reading that backup story, we don't know much more. But we do see that he did have a connection to some of these, some of his teammates, which in reflection makes his death a little bit more poignant, but his resurrection somehow even less. Now Evan uses the same comparison I did. Uh, Thunderbird was a Barry Allen. Barry Allen, the uh, Silver Age Flash, died in crisis. When I came into Flash Comics, Wally was the guy, and Barry was St. Barry. You know, Barry was the he was the symbol. He was who everybody was striving toward. He's the one who selflessly gave of himself to save the universe, the multiverse. Or I guess it was it was folded into a single universe after that, but he was there to do what he did. And Wally, one of the best parts about that series was Wally's maturation throughout it. He was striving to be he was striving to fill the shoes that he was given, you know, way, way, way too soon. And so we saw Barry through his lens Which kind of went, you know, kind of dulled out the flaws And smoothed everything out Like Barry was not a flawed man He wasn't perfect But he was as close to perfect as he can get in, in his role So in death he became greater You know, we've got characters like Uncle Ben who've never been brought back Or the real Uncle Ben's never been brought back But we see Ben as this inspirational figure If he were to ever be brought back and your comics being what they are now, he would be a very flawed person. And I don't know that anybody wants to read that. They bring Barry back, then the new 52 happens, and suddenly he's, you know, 20 something Peter Parker, you know, swinging single, kind of a goofball, couldn't get a win even by accident. You know, it just it took a lot of the mystique away. And I feel like bringing Thunderbird back, you know, to circle this all the way back to being X relevant, um, I think, you know, the question. You know, anytime, anytime you're you're engaging in some sort of a creative endeavor where maybe you're bouncing ideas off of somebody, a peer, a friend, and you start your thought with, hey, wouldn't it be cool if... And uh, the answer is either yes or no. But the answer is very seldom, okay, then what? Because sure, you know, wouldn't it be cool to bring Thunderbird back? Sure. Then what? We've already seen him in an issue of uh, New Mutants, where... He was not at all like the character that we briefly knew back around Giant Size I just don't know what's next Because I think uh, Thunderbird, as he was written back in the long ago Had perhaps some problematic traits or behaviors uh, that uh, don't play so well in current year So do we stay true to the character or do we change him? You know, um, because... I think I compared him to Captain America, in a way, during that New Mutants issue, where he is, right now, a man out of time. So he should be, you'd figure, it's human nature, he would be kind of trying to receive what's going on now, uh, in which he would have to then reconcile with what he knew from before. I don't know if that makes any sense, or if I'm even wording it anywhere near proper, but I feel like with Thunderbird, we're going to go down the path of least resistance rather than trying to tell a complex and challenging story. Evan continues, I'm of two minds about the end of The Crucible. Now, as a cultural practice, it was awful. As a story element, it was very interesting. And while it's good for them to move past it, it seemed pretty nonchalant. Was it just something Hickman wanted that no one else did? I guess that's one less thing for Nightcrawler and company to wrestle with over in at Legion of X. Maybe they should enlist Wanda for other problems. Hey, they're making too many mutants and leaving them under trees. Could you use your magic to reduce the collective Krakoan libido? Well, that last part first. If they did that, wouldn't they be going against one of the tenets of Krakoa? Make more mutants? I, I, I don't know that there was an asterisk after that. Who's to say? The the laws change whenever uh, whenever they find it convenient to do so. As for The Crucible, I mean, The Crucible has been one of our touchstones throughout this entire uh, post hawksbox era. And it's one of the most uh, interesting topics that we've discussed. I-, I don't think we've gone more than a couple of episodes without addressing it here on the show, and we're 332 in. It's very, very interesting. It's very, very troublesome, as Evan puts it here, as is a, a cultural practice... It was awful, and I think awful might be too soft a word I mean, it was horrendous Certainly one of the hardest things to wrap our minds around as we were reading it It was one of those, it's not often when I'm reading a comic and I get to a, a scene or a page or a concept Where I have to read it a few times because it's like, there's no way that's what they're actually doing You know, I, I, I didn't think for a moment that The Crucible was what it actually turned out being and I think you nailed it. I think this was a Hickman thing that maybe no one else either knew what to do with, or felt all that comfortable with. Because I think we mentioned this uh, last episode, where the concept of what it is to be a mutant and being what what it is to be a Cohen it changed, right? And I mentioned that during the Hickman run, especially the earlier parts, there was this underlying horror to it. There was something. To keep us uneasy and keep us kinda on our toes and kinda nervous and scared as to what you know what was the next shoot to drop. We had a lot of those questions. We didn't know how deep this horror show was going to go. And I think it was even during uh, X Men number one that I, I said it like read out of, like something out of the Twilight Zone. We had this like weird idyllic dinner with the Summers extended family, and Corsair was the only one who could kind of see through. The facade of Krakoa and uh, the summer house and all the weirdness, but he was assured that everything was cool. And it felt like the people who were telling him that it was cool, notably his, his children and their friends, might not be the most reliable sources. You know, it was very, very weird. And I think as the Hoxpox era uh, evolved, uh, they wanted to normalize They wanted to change it from being something we were nervous about To something we just accepted And now we look at Kokoa as, you know, this island nation paradise Rather than this weird, scary, what's going on just a foot under the surface sort of place Like those early issues, we always had these beach parties And people were dying, but there were beach parties Like nobody cared about anything I really feel like Hickman was trying to drop these bits and pieces into the books to subtly let us, like, muddle over them and think about them and wonder why they're acting this way. Things like The Crucible, of course. Why are they accepting this? The dance parties in X-Force, like when Professor X just had his brains blown out ten feet over there. You know, they're still dancing. I think... I really think we were headed a different direction before... Uh, Maybe editorial and marketing got involved And were like, hey, we like this direction And um, we're going to stick with it For a little while, but In order to do that It needs to be a little bit less creepy Which speaks to the nonchalance Or is that a word? Nonchalance? (laughs) How nonchalant it was That uh, the Crucible just kind of went away You know, it it didn't seem like Something that was given much thought It was just like, oh yeah, we don't need it anymore It's like, but there's still a Blood-stained arena on the island Should we should we address it? I mean, it was a big part Of Krakoan culture I really don't know, maybe we'll get some answers I'm not holding my breath, but uh, Maybe we'll get some answers in the uh, In the new Destiny of X era But uh, I want to thank you so much For taking the time to write in, Evan And giving me some tangential springboards Which, uh, I mean I, I always speak in tangents, so um, this, this only pushed me even further. But thank you so, so much. Uh, that's going to do it for today. If anybody out there would like to get a hold of me for any old reason, I would encourage you to do so. You could reach me several different ways. On Twitter, I'm at Ace Comics. Uh, Instagram, 90s X-Men. The email address is weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. And, of course, the voicemail hotline is 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to ChrisIsOnInfiniteEarths.com. You can join us on Facebook at 90sXmen. Uh, the complete audio archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere the internet aggregates noise and sound. And finally, there is the Patreon. That is patreon.com slash But that's going to do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so much for sharing a little bit of your day with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.